friends, it's Morgan, and welcome back to another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast. As this year draws to a close, I felt impressed to pause and simply remember the speed at which we travel is often too far and too fast, and so much has transpired in this utterly unique year. It felt important to simply slow down and take stock and to remember what God has accomplished and ultimately to share with you a gift, a gift for the Advent season and a gift for the Christmas season. Thank God we have the liturgical calendar that whatever else is unfolding in our lives personally, in that which is entrusted to our care or in the globe, we have these calls back to all that is true and good and beautiful. And like me, I um, assume that you are preparing for the coming of the celebration of the incarnation of God with us, the power that entered the human stage to restore everything and everyone to what God meant it to be. It has been a unique year, and I found myself recently just pausing to remember because the current demands and the momentary changes and decisions in just reacting to a world that's changing so much with the pandemic, I found myself needing to pause, and I went through my camera roll, my pictures on my phone, and I went through my calendar just as an act of remembering what did God do? What happened this year? Where did we go? And there were themes that stood out to me. There was a theme of drought and of loss. I think in some ways, a word that you can use synonymously with drought, as it's often referred to in scriptures, parched land, is, is a time and a land and a reality of lacking. This year has had much loss. There's been the loss of grief and celebration. I saw that in my calendar. And some of these stories are, are, are personal and then some are more universal from all of the allies that we have the privilege of traveling with around the globe. But just how the loss of the ability to grieve well and to grieve intimately in community with funerals. We had a dear friend that crossed over this year and the funeral was such a odd experience not because of the lack of great hearts there, but because of all these restrictions and social distancing and mask wearing and just a, a pervasive sense of fear from some of the people there that were concerned about contracting or spreading disease. And so there was just a loss of grief and then loss of celebration. There were several weddings that transpired just in our immediate circle that we weren't able to participate in and they weren't able to offer in community how they desired to offer. And friends, it's just important to name for the soul of the loss of grief and celebration and how important those are as, as spiritual practices to keep us healthy and well. Jesus says, I played a wedding song and you didn't dance. I played a funeral song and you didn't grieve. Jesus calls us back to grieving and celebrating as central practices to 
reattach us to his heart and his kingdom. And I think of the loss of momentum, where there was movement in church communities um, for our story. There was movement with young life, with our kids, and relational uh, connections with fathers and other daughters and sons. And there was just loss of momentum of things that we had built and allies had built in their communities. And I think of just the loss of innocence and even with that connection, so many friends with children in college and children in high schools with sports teams and with new beginnings and with closings of seasons. There was just so much loss. And you know, I've heard the stories of young people at colleges where technically they're in a school that they dreamed of participating in. But the community has been ravaged and they're in social isolation in dorms. They're taking their meals to go. So they have to leave the cafeteria and come back to their dorms. They're not allowed to have anyone in their dorm rooms except for uh, the other resident. It's that sort of experience that has just been uh, profoundly devastating. Think of losses in finances and particularly so many of our allies who courageously care for smaller local businesses and of the segments of the economy that have been hard hit. I've heard it said that 25% of small businesses have already shuttered their doors permanently. And there's been very poignant and great financial um, and missional, vocational losses. I think of just the losses of freedoms, the losses of opportunity, the losses of connection that happens when two people look in each other's eyes in real time, face to face, and the, the loss of simply the touch of a hug, of wrapping your arm around someone and through your body saying, you're not alone and we're going to be well. Friends, there's been so many losses this year. There has been a great shaking. And it's interesting that as I travel through scriptures, I find the theme of shaking, both of creation, but also of God's community, of those who put their confidence in God. That's a theme, and God's people are not an exception. It surfaces again and again, this regular shaking. I've found a lot of comfort in staying in the book of Jeremiah, the great prophet, and the story of the shaking of the people of God when they were in exile in Babylon, and they were under great siege and great trial, and God uses Jeremiah as is this invitation back, the heart of the people to the heart of God, constantly referring to the people of God as a bride and it being a love story. And this relationship between husband and wife and him naming, there's just been so much adultery of the heart where he says that we've committed two crimes against humanity and against our very own souls. We have forsaken streams of living water for life. And we have dug cisterns to provide a life on our own terms, in our own time, in our own way. And isn't that the summary of what we all are prone to do? 
is to turn our hearts away from living water and set up cisterns for ourselves. But you see these themes of shaking through scripture and the hope is that in shaking, it reveals what cannot be shaken. And so friends, I I also see that in a year of loss, there is also a year of great gain. Dallas Willard has often said, truth is what we bump into when we're wrong. And I remember walking into a glass wall, moving office furniture, helping my buddy's dad in this high rise. And there was a wall and it was thick, and it was unmovable, and I never saw it. And I went straight into it, nose first, ended up on the floor, and I looked like a raccoon for a week. And I remember it was such a gift to my soul looking back to have that experience of going, I never saw the wall, but it was, in fact, a true reality and one in which I had to contend with whether I desired to or not. And so I do believe that God is inviting us back to truth, back to deeper attachment, deeper connection of more and more parts of us and our story and our kingdom being brought back into alignment with God and his kingdom, gathering up the diffused and divided pieces of our attention and our affection, which have become so easily scattered in this day. I believe that in the shaking, there's this invitation back to abundance. In the midst of scarcity and lack, there's always abundance coming from God's heart and God's kingdom. I love Graham Cook, the way he says that there's never a problem that does not have an equal provision in a very personal way, coming from God. I found a lot of comfort in praying through Psalm 23. And there have been different seasons of my life where I've returned to it. But this year, especially in these later um, months, these last months of the year, I've just found myself pausing and, and sinking into Psalm 23, proclaiming the truth of coming to the center of this young shepherd, David, who is spending most of his nights out in open country, and if you spent time in open country and dry high mountain desert, you know that you are usually hot or cold, but rarely comfortable. That he's young and he's been entrusted with something that feels big. There is very real pronounced threat to his flock. And his job is to tend to their care and to provide them protection. And he knows what it's like to be a shepherd because that's what he set his heart towards. And it's from that place that David declares and announces in the heavens, God, you are my shepherd. You are my best friend. You are the one in whom I can place my confidence and my trust, even though I face circumstances that accuse and incite unbelief and doubt. You are my shepherd. You are my best friend. And because of you, I do not lack. I have more than enough. And the passage concludes with this beautiful prayer of triumph where David says, God, I am the chased after one. You chase after me, providing goodness for me in the land of the living. 
Friends, that's what God is up to. In the midst of trying times, God is beckoning that we would allow him to draw us near, that we would slow and we would respond to God's generosity, to his intimate, in particular, leadership, to his wealth, where he's giving us much of what can't be bought. And that's the exercise of going through a calendar and going through a camera roll to experience that's what's true, that we are the wealthy ones, that there have been provisions, unexpected, unimagined in each and every one of our stories, but it's so easy to miss those provisions. I think back on my story this year, God provided us three completely joyful camping trips that just felt like threading the camel through the eye of a needle. And actually two were camping trips and one was just an adventure trip. But spring break, the world started locking down and we had high hopes for a spring break trip and it it wasn't happening. And I prayed and said, God, what are we supposed to do? We need a break. And God said, I want to fight for it if you'll fight for it. And I said, I'll fight for it. And so I started making phone calls and trying to check out national parks and state parks and everything was closing literally by the hour. We have this old camper that I rebuilt that is just enough to get us out on adventure. And I had a friend that came to mind and I was, I was doing some listening prayer who lived in Texas and it was a lot warmer than Colorado. Spring had not hit Colorado. And so I called him and said, hey, do you know anyone that has a little private property that we could stick our camper on? We're looking for a place to protect a little joy for spring break. Everything's locking down on public land, and we want to stay off the grid to honor all the restrictions. And so he said, absolutely. I know a guy. You can park, a pl- you can park your camper here. And the next day, we did an 11-hour road trip to Texas, fully self-contained. And we ended up having five days of total joy of simple joy, of walks in the green, lush hill country of Texas when Colorado was still in the dry, late winter snow season. And then midsummer, we were just really beat from all of the work and intensity required with the launch for becoming a king. And we sense God say, you need to just hit just a hot extract. You need a hard eject. You need to go off the grid and fight for joy. And so we headed north towards Glacier. Once again, in our camper, we navigated a really big hailstorm where golf ball size hail was pummeling us and broke through all the, the skylights. But in the end, we experienced some of the most joyful single track we ever had taken as a family on these beautiful bike trails just south of the Canadian border. We saw wildlife and God gave us this extreme gift of biking, the going to the sun road in Glacier without any vehicles. And I guess because of COVID, For some reason, the road was closed to cars, but you could still bike it. And so we biked by grizzly bears and mountain goats. And in 20 years, it's only been open to only bikes and no vehicles twice. And God had a destiny. He had a plan that it took risk. And there were all these naysayers saying, don't go. And national parks are closed. And it's not going to work out. And I'm a planner. And I'm a strategist. And God said, don't make a plan. Just go north. And on and on it went for Thanksgiving. We've spent the last 19 years back east at 
family, either in the East Coast or Pennsylvania or Illinois. And due to older parents and COVID, it, it didn't make sense. And we felt like God said, I have joy for you. I want you to go on adventure. And so we ended up at the Four Corners in Cortez, Colorado, staying at a Holiday Inn and having a warm breakfast to go at their breakfast buffet and just cracking up at just the oddities, the joy of small towns and National Park, Mesa Verde to ourself, like literally with no other people had brilliant hikes going into cliff dwellings. Like that was wealth. And friends, I share those stories because there was a lot of loss this year. There was a lot of battle. There was a lot of discouragement. And you could feel hopelessness wanting to sneak in. But as I look back on the calendar, I remembered God was abundant. We were the chased after ones. And so how about you? How do you pause in, in your circumstances right now call to mind demonstrations of God's wealth, where you are wealthy in things that cannot be bought. God's abundance that he provided richly for you in the midst of loss and sorrow. God's pursuit that when it felt like, make it happen, get it done, come through, there was also the storyline of you are being pursued by love. Friends, it's so important to remember. And so I want to invite you through this podcast to take some time today. Open your camera roll. Look at your calendar through the lens. Father, show me your faithfulness. Show me your abundance. Show me your care. Show me your provision. As I look back for Become Good Soil over the year, it's been my heartbeat and my fierce intention to go after the few, to reach the many, to find the few. The gospel's available to all, but it's always a few who respond to the deeper work of apprenticeship. Become Good Soil is the deep track for the Wild at Heart tribe for those that want the deeper things, that want their whole heart back, that want to become the kind of kings in whom God is glad to entrust the care of his kingdom. And as you know, I very intentionally target the Become Good Soil podcast for men. There are as many women as men who benefit from it, as I hear from stories and letters and responses. And I welcome that and I bless that. But out of integrity, my desire is to unapologetically speak to men. I want to have a space where men can be men, can consider the questions of the masculine soul, that can dig deep and be unapologetic in exploring and wrestling with and celebrating the reality that the most important thing we can ever know about a human being is that they bear the image of God as a woman or as a man. And so it's my heartbeat to reach women and to reach men. And that's why I invite Sherry so often to partner with her in our work at Become Good Soil. But first and foremost, I unapologetically want to go after men. And in this past year, I've offered a lot of podcasts and blogs. In all of it, I hope that you've experienced the intention behind it is not to simply offer content, though content is important, but it's to offer content that leads us 
to cultivate space where we can encounter God, to recover a response-centered walk with God. And so this year I started with these ideas around this, this concept of the big me. And Isaiah 44 says, no one stops to think. No one stops to understand, to discern the times. And friends, if there's anything we are meant to do as men and as people who are becoming kings and becoming queens entrusted with the care of God's kingdom, we must pause and back up from the trees and look at the forest and ask the question, what's going on here? We don't live in normal times. So just a couple weeks ago, we were in Mesa Verde National Park, and we were exploring these cliff dwellings where in 1200 to 1500 AD, there were Native Americans living in these cliffs. And their desires for food, clothing, and shelter, and intimacy, and community, and mission, and adventure, and intimacy with God were very similar to ours, but they lived in a very dramatically different world. We are living in an unprecedented age, and we have to discern the times in order that we can understand how we live in a way where we thrive in this era, because God intended for us to live in this hour, in this story. It's really important to pause and think about this, because so often we can ache with something like nostalgia for a different time. I know for me, if I could choose any time in history, I would be among the early Native Americans living in a teepee and or a wigwam and being in a hunter-gatherer culture. And yet God has given me that sort of heart in order that I could bring whatever portion of his heart he's entrusted to my care to this world at this hour. And so it's very important to stop and pause and discern the times. And we live in the times of the big me. It really was ushered in in the technological revolution and then the invention, the introduction of the iPhone in 2007 and the like and follow me in 2009. We live post-I generation. But it's the me-centered culture where it's self-defining, it's self-actualizing, it's self-initiating, which is very catastrophic for the human soul. And here is the dilemma. We weren't made to live in a world where we were at its center. We were born into a world in which God is and was and will be, and he is the epicenter of all things. And we are born into his story and find our place in him. And so the problem with trying to figure out who we are apart from God is that we've lost our compass. We've lost our orientation and we've lost our center. And so whatever your life is, whatever your story has become, as long as you're at the center, you will never find meaningful life. But in contrast, when we find God and we align to this reality, and we find ourselves in the context of the greater whole of God in his creation, it's there that we find true meaning, true peace, and true well-being for our soul. And so 
I have explored this through the spring and into the rest of the year of how do we recover this God-centered reality rather than the big me. And that was the term coined by David Brooks in The Road to Character, a phenomenal book that I recommended at the beginning of the year and I still recommend to your reading. But in that, one of the on-ramps that I found that's so essential is this idea of cultivating curiosity. Rather than leading with answers, we lead with questions and we pause with a listening heart. And that's been the most revolutionary shift in my prayer life is to center on God, to pause and to get curious. God, where are you? What are you doing? What are you like? How do I pray? Where are we in the story? What is your heart for me? Tell me who you are. What are my orders? Where are my gifts? And there's some beautiful shift that happens in the soul when we live a response-oriented life rather than a self-initiated, self-directed life. It's strength through dependency. And from that, I introduced the idea of margin, recovering it from discipleship. I've had the privilege of spending with Richard Swenson, the author of Margin, where he simply defines margin is the distinction between our load and our limits. And so most, if not all of us, carry a greater load than the limits that we have. We're we're finite creatures with finite capacity. And so there's this courageous movement to create margin to cultivate the practice of our yes and our no so that we can make space between our load and our limits, that we can respond to a world that simply is the message more and more faster and faster. That's where we live, up and to the right. And in that, we can, from a warrior heart, say, no, I don't agree with that. I won't give my soul to that. I choose to respond to God, to his heart, to agree with a soul's pace at a soul's portion in a soul's rhythm. And so the invitation this spring was to recover margin and to repent from more and more faster and faster as the prevailing current of culture and instead find this cadence, find a rhythm where there is more capacity than there is load. And we can live in the midst of a crazy world, a reflective life, a God-centered, a God-responsive life, where we hear his voice, where we breathe, where we tune in to the things that matter most. Friends, there were many podcasts and many blogs this year that from these themes explored the deep work of becoming wholehearted as a man and as a woman. I used the stories of allies like Kara Murphy and Joel Mitchell and Zach Thomas, and Sherry and I dove deep into inner healing and integration of the whole person, of dismantling codependency and recovering the dignity of causality and knowing in any and every situation, we have the power to choose. We are never victims. And that is empowering. And in all of this work, 
the hope is that what we're recovering together is it is a love story in the midst of war. Make no mistake, we don't have to look far to see we live in a world at war. The stories of terrible mishandling of power, mostly by men, are grievous and devastating. And yet that's not the end of the story. It's why more than anything else in scripture, the theme that God uses to name our relationship and its recovery with him is the relationship of a marriage, of a covenant, of true soul-to-soul union and intimacy and oneness. It is a love story in the midst of a great war. Where we're headed is the restoration of all things. And it was from that place and from that intention that it was a joy to offer this year the launch of becoming a king. As most of you know, it was my offering back to the world out of what's been entrusted to my care over the last 20 years. In the book and in the study guide and in the video series, my intent was to respond with the gift of recovering the path and process where we can become whole, we can become well and strong and true, become the kind of men in whom God is glad to entrust the care of his kingdom. It's a path and a process, and it's not new, but it is newly recovered. And so my intent was to feature this curating and distilling of the treasures that I gleaned over 20 years at the feet of sages and wise guides, recovering those treasures and that map to a treasure that leads to rest and restoration for the human heart. And God's timing of it was absolutely wild. I didn't orchestrate that. I simply did the next thing over 20 years and God's timing to launch it in a time where the world was shaken, where the abuse and mishandling of men in power was front and center stage. It's a message that's accessible for hearts who have been shaken to bring the promise of the restoration of life as it was meant to be. And so God timed it and you helped in so many ways with partnering to bring that to the world. It's just beginning. I was featured on over 50 podcasts and many of those are now available at becomegoodsoil.com. All the other venues and media outlets that featured Becoming a King and the message of Become Good Soil. And so we just posted that recently. You can find those. I had the privilege of participating in over 50 Zoom events where I would gather with like-hearted allies, leading men and sometimes mixed gender groups through the Becoming a King video and study guide. And I'm still doing that, enjoying that immensely. And if God leads you in the new year to shepherd a group of people through the Becoming a King video and study guide on the launch team page, you can find the form where you can let us know about it. And we'd love to invite you, a leader and your participants to join me for an evening exclusive gathering, a time of encouragement and conversation and question response. But in all of it, I believe it was God's timing, not the time to sell books. Bookstores were all closed for the first time in, in history that I can remember because of the pandemic. But the time to bring what I believe is an anointed message to the people 
that are thirsty for God and his kingdom. And so I'm grateful for your partnership to get Becoming a King out to the world. And as most of you know, but if you don't know it, there is a launch team page. It's becomingaking.com slash launch team. And it has gifts of the study guide in a digital form and the videos and some intimate conversations with my wife and the wives of some of my closest allies who've consented to becoming a king for over a decade. And the form that you can give feedback to us about your Becoming a King group so we can share that together in the new year. But all of that is available to you as you help partner with this message that God has entrusted to my care. Friends, it is a love story in the midst of great war. And as this year comes to a close, what I want to remember together is that God is Emmanuel. He is the God who is with us. He is with you right here, right now, in your story in your work, in your home, in your holidays, in your pain, in your dreams, in those particular questions you have that are very deep in your heart. He is with you. And he is working to bring you into deeper union and deeper wholeheartedness with him in a way that's far beyond what you could ask for or imagine. He's wanting to bring us to the place where we become the kind of people who have nothing to prove, nothing to hide, and nothing to fear. And friends, as this year closes, my sense was to simply share a gift with you, the gift of a story There's a brilliant book called The Indescribable Gift. I've talked about it in years past that you may recall. It's a book authored by Richard Exley, and it's beautifully illustrated by Phil Boatwright. And it's a book that I've returned to every Advent and Christmas season for over a decade, uh, maybe even going on two decades. And what Richard does is bring back the story of the first Christmas in just such vivid color and texture and imagination. He goes into the ancient scriptures and then he fills them in afresh with the, with the nuances of humanity, which we all know because we share in common the bearing of the image of God. I find myself every December turning to these stories. Often it's just reading them personally. And sometimes, like last night, it's choosing a story, uh, one of the chapters. Each chapter is told from the vantage point of one of the heroes in the story, Simeon or Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, the innkeeper. But the stories have a way of accessing the reality of the incarnation and Emmanuel, God with us, and cutting through the fog and the mire and the confusion, cutting through cynicism or scarcity, returning back to the abundance and the true nature of all things. In the introduction, Richard says this, the indescribable gift gives you the opportunity to experience the birth of Jesus in an intimate way 
by allowing you to share in the thoughts and feelings of those who were there within the factual framework of scripture, history, and tradition. Richard gives imagination free reign to create a real-life account of this glorious event. Instead of just reading about the birth of Jesus Christ this Christmas season, you can experience it through the accounts of those who were there. So friends, as this year comes to a close, my sense was to share the gift that Richard shared with me, and I wanted to read some of the words of the chapter of the birth of Jesus told from the vantage point of Zechariah. If you recall, Zechariah was a priest who was married to Elizabeth. He was a man of God. He was a man who had put his trust and his confidence in God and faithfully served God all his life into his outer years. He was destined to be the father of John the Baptist, but that was a miracle and a revelation that had yet to come to him and to his wife, Elizabeth, who had been barren. And so this is the story that goes back into the birth of Christ told from the perspective of Zechariah. My gift to you and my invitation is in these moments to simply pause and to set your story aside all that's coming up for you in this podcast. Safely set it aside for now and allow your heart to receive these words. Ascending one final hill, the old man pauses, weary from his journey, to survey the village spread out on the Judean hillside below. Lifting a gnarled hand, he shades his eyes against the setting sun, straining to locate his home in the gathering dusk. At last he does, and though he is tired, he now quickens his pace, anxious to be home. He has only been gone a little more than a week, but it seems longer. So much has happened. Turning onto the path leading to the modest dwelling, he catches sight of a stout woman through a small window. Though they had been husband and wife for nearly 50 years, he is now seized by a rush of emotion unlike anything he has ever known. Shedding his weariness like a discarded garment, he hurries into the house. Grabbing the woman about her waist, he crushes her to himself. Although the fierceness of Zechariah's embrace catches her by surprise, Elizabeth gives herself to it without hesitation. He is slight while she is stout. Still, he manages to whirl her around the room, so great is his joy. Finally, he collapses in a gasping heap while tears of joy course down his cheeks. What has come over you? She demands in mock anger, her expression a mixture of confusion and joy. Without thinking, Zechariah attempts to speak, but he cannot utter a peep. His lips move, but no sound is forthcoming. In an instant, Elizabeth's joy turns to concern. She reaches out her hand to touch his thin lips, her eyes full of questions. Brushing aside her concerns with an impatient wave of his arm, Zechariah leads her to a cushion and motions for her to sit down. Reluctantly, she concurs, perching her ample frame anxiously on the edge of a cushion. With an exaggerated deliberateness, the old man extracts a small scroll from his bag and hands it to her. 
Looking over her shoulder, he watches as she opens it with trembling fingers and begins to read. My dearest Elizabeth, do not be frightened. Though I cannot speak, there is nothing to be alarmed about. It is a sign from God confirming the amazing thing he is about to do. So wonderful is his promise to us that I would gladly be mute all the days of my life rather than forfeit his blessing. Forgive me. In my excitement, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me start at the beginning, and I will try to leave nothing out. You know that as a priest, I've spent my entire adult life in sacred service. Yet I have never been privileged to burn incense in the golden altar. I am not the only priest who has been denied the sacred honor. With 24 priestly orders, there are far more priests than the temple service requires. As a consequence, each order only serves in the temple two weeks out of the entire year. Each day, a single priest is chosen by lots to offer incense in the holy place. As there are thousands of priests, no priest is allowed to perform his duty more than once in his lifetime. Still, there are those who serve their whole lives without once being chosen. On the first day of our temple service, I was chosen for this holy task. And as you could well imagine, I was profoundly moved. As the appointed hour approached, I felt my heart pounding with the kind of excitement I had not experienced since I was a very young man. The moment for which I had waited a lifetime was finally at hand. Alone, at last, in this holy place, I was overcome with a sense of awe. Before me hung the richly embroidered curtain which separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Only the high priest is allowed to enter there, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. The veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet wide, woven a handbreadth thick of 72 plates with 24 threads each. It was resplendent with cherubim, woven in scarlet, purple, blue, and gold. To my left stood a table of showbread. Immediately in front of me was the golden altar of incense, and to my right the seven-branch candlestick burned brightly. As I waited for the signal to burn the incense, my thoughts turned towards you. You, Elizabeth, are the most godly woman, a fitting wife for a priest, upright in the sight of God, observing God's commandments and regulations without blame. Being a descendant of Aaron, the first high priest, I knew you would appreciate the honor that had at last befallen me. In most ways, our marriage has been a blessed one. We share much in common, especially our devotion to the God of Israel. Faithfully, we have served him. And like the devout Jews everywhere, we long for the coming of our Messiah. I cherish the many times we talk of this blessed event late into the night, surely. It must be soon. Thinking about our marriage that day in the Holy of Holies, I felt a familiar ache. Years ago, when we were young, we talked of having a house full of sons. Like many Jewish couples, we even dared to hope that we might be privileged to give birth to the Messiah, or at least to one of his ancestors. But as those years have passed, with no children being born to us, that dream died. Still, the disappointment lived intruding on my thoughts, even in that holy moment. At last, the signal was given, and I turned my thoughts fully to my sacred duties. 
like a thousand priests before me and a thousand priests before them. I scattered the incense on the white hot coals covering the golden altar. In an instant, the altar was shrouded in a fragrant smoke that ascended to God. Outside the temple court, hundreds of worshipers fell face down before the Lord and spread out their hands in silent supplication, their prayers joining with the incense offering as it rose to God. I stood motionless before the altar, savoring this once-in-a-lifetime moment to the fullest, nearly overcome with a sense of holiness. Involuntarily, I found myself thinking, surely, the Lord is in this place. And what a wonderfully dreadful thought that was. The sense of his nearness was almost more than I could bear. Like Isaiah of old, I felt undone on the inside, unworthy of being in his presence. Yet, for all of that, I had no desire to flee, no desire to escape his overwhelming nearness. Though my eyes were tightly closed in silent prayer, I sensed a presence. Turning toward it, I felt a radiance upon my face. And through my closed eyelids, I saw a rainbow of color, something you might see should you stare at the sun with your eyes closed. Gathering my courage, I tentatively opened my eyes just a crack, only to discover that I was face to face with an angel. As Elizabeth read, her face reflects her feelings. Concern gives way to amazed incredulity and then joyous wonder. The scroll is trembling in her hands, and her eyes devour the words. She goes on with the scroll. Clamping my eyes tightly closed, I tried to comprehend what was happening. A splash of dazzling colors danced behind my eyelids. Was I having a vision, I wondered, or was this an angelic visitation? By then, I was nearly sick with fear. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, the angel said as though he could read my thoughts. Your prayers have been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He continued to speak, even though it must have been obvious that I was having trouble comprehending this message. Not the words, for they were clear enough, but the reality of what he was saying. I remember thinking, are we truly going to have a son after all these years? After we have lost all hope of ever having children, can this be true? He will be a joy and delight to you, the angel continued, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will never take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. And then he spoke words that pushed me over the edge. The angel said he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. In that instant, I knew that this was not merely the promise of a son, but the promise of the coming Messiah, John, our son was going to prepare the way for the Messiah, just as Malachi the prophet had said nearly 400 years ago. More than anything, I wanted to believe the angel's message was true, but I was afraid to do so. What if I misunderstood? What if I had misinterpreted his words, made them more what I wanted them to be 
and what they really were. Tentatively, I ventured a question. How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Instantly, I realized that I had made a mistake. I should have kept my thoughts to myself, for my words offended the angel. It was not his truthfulness that I questioned, nor God's ability to make your barren womb fruitful, but my own ability to accurately comprehend what was happening. I could not be sure if an angel was really speaking to me or if it was all a figment of my imagination. I could not help wondering what it would be like the next day when all I had left of this experience was memory. How would I know if this really happened? Drawing himself up to his full height, the angel declared, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their proper time. And then he was gone, and things returned as they were before he appeared. Numbly, I stared at the empty space to the right of the altar, searching in vain for some evidence of his presence. There was nothing, not even a hint. The holy place was empty, except for the last wisps of sweet-smelling smoke that lingered above the golden altar. From the temple court, I heard the murmur of impatient voices. I forced myself to resume my priestly duties. They were waiting for me to appear and pronounce the priestly blessing. Take a deep breath. I calmed myself. Purposefully, I strode onto the steps overlooking the temple court, raising my hands. I silenced the worshipers and prepared to speak. The familiar words filled my mind. The Lord bless you and keep you. But I could not speak. I was as mute as a post. For a moment, fear overwhelmed me and I fell to my knees. And then I understood. I was not being judged or punished. This was a sign. The angel was real. We're going to have a son, you and I. He would be a prophet like Elijah. Yet more than a prophet, he would prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. In an instant, I was surrounded by my fellow priests and a host of worshipers. They besieged me with questions, demanding to know what had happened to me. Again, I tried to speak. I tried to explain what had transpired in this holy place, but the words would not come. Try as I might, I could not utter a sound, and once more I was overwhelmed with the joyous conviction that we were the unworthy recipients of a special gift from God. Gesturing wildly with my hands, I finally made them understand that I had seen a vision, that I could not speak was obvious enough, but there was no way I could explain why, not that it would have been wise to do so, even if I could have. There are some things, some experiences simply too sacred to share even with those closest to you. There is only one person I dared trust with this holy promise. You, Elizabeth, the love of my life. Having finished the letter, Elizabeth sits for several minutes in awed silence. At last, she takes Zachariah's gnarled hands in hers and looks deeply into his eyes. Twice, she attempts to speak but words fail her. 
Finally, she lifts her hands towards heaven and exclaims in a voice thick with feeling, The Lord has done this for me. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. The sense of the Lord's nearness is almost overwhelming, as it had been in the holy place, and now both the old man and his wife are undone. Clinging to each other, they are seized with fits of laughter and then tears, their spirits soaring on songs of praise for the Holy One of Israel. After a long while, Elizabeth dries her tears. She smiles shyly, as a young maiden might. Without a word, she leads Zechariah to their bed, now fragrant with the promise of God. Gone are the ghosts of past disappointments, and in their place, tender hope resides. The love they share is gentle, but purposeful. God is with them, and his promise becomes a reality in the joy of their intimacy. Friends, at the close of the indescribable gift, Richard concludes with a quote of an author unknown. It says these words, He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpentry shop until he was 30, and then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. When the tide of popular opinion turned against him, his friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies. He was tried and convicted. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never went to college. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. Yet all the armies that ever marched and all the governments that ever sat and all the kings that ever reigned have not affected life upon this earth as powerfully as has one solitary life. Friends, he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. My prayer for you this holiday season is that you would draw near, that you would allow your heart to respond to his affection, to his engagement, that your heart would respond to his curiosity, to his invitation. I feel impressed to conclude with a prayer borrowed from Habakkuk. He was another prophet of the ages past, 7th century, where the people of God are in exile and are being ravaged. There are people under great pressure. There are people that are experiencing great pain on very personal and very universal levels. Habakkuk was distraught. And what he chose to do was to pause, to listen, to get curious, to remember who God is, and to align with the reality of what God's doing, how he's doing it, 
and seeding his soul deep into the character of God and the true heart of the greatest storyteller and the greatest author who ever lived. Habakkuk says, God, I've heard what our ancestors say about you, and I am stopped in my tracks. I am down on my knees. Would you do among us what you did among them? Would you work among us, Father, the way you worked among them? God, I turn to my world, and I see devastation and loss and lack. And yet I'm reminded, Father, of who you are, Jesus, of what you have done, Holy Spirit, of how you lead. Though the fig tree does not bud, though there are no grapes on the vines, though the crops fail, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, nor cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in you, God. I will be joyful to God, my Savior. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. I take heart. I gain strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. I feel like I'm the king of the mountain. Father, as this year comes to a close, I do choose to trust you. I choose to set my confidence in you. You have demonstrated your faithfulness. You have demonstrated your care. I ask, Father, that you would give me the grace to open the gates of my kingdom to your kingdom, that every door that is barred shut and every gate that has remained locked and the doors that have felt impenetrable or broken. God, I ask that your grace would empower me to do the thing that I long to do, to open every door and every window and every gate to receive your light in your life. You are Emmanuel. You are God with us. You have come in the past and you are coming in the present and you will come again. God, I pray that this remembrance of the incarnation would cut through everything that opposes drawing near to you and responding to you wholehearted with my body, soul, my heart, my mind, and all my strength. Father, I give myself afresh to you. I receive your joy. I receive your portion. I receive your pace. I receive your rhythm. I receive your boundaries. I receive your leadership. I receive your affection. And I receive your care. You are my God. Come and do what you love to do. I give you permission and I give you access afresh. Show me what's on your heart. 
pray all these things in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Friends, that reading was a brief portion from Richard Exley and Phil Boatwright in The Indescribable Gift. I urge you to pick up a copy. It's an out-of-print, older book, and I have bought Amazon out of all their new copies, all of their excellent, they're very good, and I'm working through buying their good uh, quality to give away to uh, friends and family. And so as those come back on Amazon, you can pick those up. And there's a link in this podcast post to pick that up. But friends, that story was a gift to share with you today. And I pray as like-hearted, as one of the few, that we would stand shoulder to shoulder and shield to shield, that we would look back over this year and see the faithfulness of God, the provision of God, and we would turn our hearts and our strength together towards a celebration of the incarnation and look over the horizon into the new year with light and life and believe that God is faithful. He is always faithful and he is waiting there to meet us in what's ahead. Bless you. Look forward to being back together on another episode of the Become Good Soil podcast.